It's been a while, but journalism is finally showing signs of life in Sri Lanka. Working the local beat in India, the governments and corporations that get in the way. Plus, did he just say that? That is somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat. Dropping a bombshell on CNN and the interviewer who just carried on. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we provide explanatory journalism about journalism and the global news media. Sri Lanka is in a state of political upheaval. This past week, anti-government protests forced the president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, to flee the island after hundreds of demonstrators invaded his official residence and torched the house of his prime minister. They also stormed the headquarters of the state-owned broadcaster. Social media users and their smartphones have driven and documented the protests since they began back in March over a collapsing economy and the Rajapaksa clan's domination of the country's politics. Posting and live streaming on platforms like Facebook has enabled protesters to mobilize, expose police brutality and ridicule their rulers. Under Rajapaksa and his brother Mahinda, the former president, Traditional media outlets have tended to kowtow to government pressure. That, too, is beginning to change. Our starting point this week is the capital, Colombo. It is difficult to reconcile what is unfolding in Sri Lanka, how unprecedented, historic and serious this story is, with those videos on social media after protesters took over the presidential palace. How farcical they were. The high dive into Gotabaya Rajapaksa's swimming pool. Protesters on his treadmill working out. Amateur wrestlers in Rajapaksa's bedroom with some professional commentary thrown in. Oh my God, right to the chest! This was a media moment, the likes of which we've never seen. We saw acts of journalism, messages, text posts, saying, I'm here, look at what's happening, come here, join us, this is important, this is historic. Many of us who were at the protest site, we couldn't post things on social media because the networks were getting jammed, but it was quite remarkable in the way people were just able to access and see the luxury the political leaders were living in. And so it's a contrast to what many Sri Lankans are facing right now, complete contrast. Underlying these moments of sort of levity and joy, there is a very significant sort of continuity of state violence in terms of how the protesters themselves were attacked, shot at, media workers who were assaulted. There's been quite a lot that's happening in the background that has been immensely violent and hasn't been addressed in any form by the state and no one really has been held accountable either. Social media is made for political uprisings like Sri Lanka's when developments come fast. Mainstream news outlets struggle to keep up. Some loyal to governments don't want to. We'll get to that. But first, the numbers. There are more than 11 million internet users in Sri Lanka, about half the population. Facebook is the dominant platform. WhatsApp, TikTok, and Instagram are also popular. 
Since the movement to depose President Gotabaya Rajapaksa got its start four months ago, social media has been a vital organizational tool. Protesters have used it to live stream demonstrations over shortages of food to eat, gas to cook it with, and petrol to power cars. Videos that have attracted record audiences. Hashtags like Gota, Go Home turned into rallying calls. The rest is history, as is the president. We had an election in January 2015 when the internet penetration in Sri Lanka was only 25%. But by the end of 2021, significantly, the number of internet users in Sri Lanka exceeded 50%. And this keeps growing. We have uh, around 8 million active Facebook users and other social media users. So we have the tools now to bear witness through social media and also to use it as an organizing tool, information sharing and discussion tool. The urgency of what was unfolding like every minute or so allowed for platforms such as Twitter to be used more effectively almost. So there were a couple of efforts to block social media for instance which Sri Lanka has done before and the outrage against it was so immediate the blocks were lifted in you know an hour a couple of hours. What's been really interesting is the public skepticism towards media that hasn't been critical of the Rajapakshas and indeed been instrumental in sort of um, propping them up. Which resulted in scenes like these. Protesters arguing their way into the studios of the Rupa Vahini Corporation, telling the state-owned broadcaster its days as a government mouthpiece are over. <laughs> The demonstrators also confronted some privately owned but equally servile networks, like Derana, which they surrounded until its reporters gave them a platform. For more than 15 years now, Kotabaya Rajapaksa has been bringing journalists to heel. It started in the mid-2000s, during the civil war in the north that pitted separatist Tamil rebels against the forces of the central government in Colombo, dominated by Sri Lanka's Sinhalese majority. Rajapaksa's older brother, Mahinda, was president at the time, but Gotabaya oversaw that operation. He used the war as a pretense to crack down on freedom of the press. Journalists were killed, arrested, intimidated into silence, and many fled the country. Gotabaya Rajapaksa was elected president in 2019, and until recently, critical coverage of his government was hard to find. Gotabaya Rajapaksa in particular has had a very dark legacy in relation to the media. At least 14 journalists were murdered or went missing when he was the secretary, unelected secretary to the defense ministry. And around 20 other journalists fled the country and went into exile to save their lives. To sum up, do I do journalism or do I risk my life by doing it? That was a terrible choice that many journalists face 
under different Rajapaksha regimes. And so there is real anger among people that some of the mainstream media have used their platform to push particular political agendas. The anger targeting Derana didn't come as a surprise because they're seen as very much partisan towards a particular political uh, position. The networks that have been promoting the Rajapaksa family and the Rajapaksa regime, uh, both when they were in government and when they were not in government, uh, have been always anchored to racist, divisive, Islamophobic disinformation and misinformation. The typical Rajapaksa haters, the liberals, the haters of the conservative establishment, the guys who support ISIS and uh, now that protest is also supported by the Catholic Church. That really is their signature, that is their brand. But suddenly you have a moment when people have taken a step back and are now questioning, why is that? Let's examine that. And so, you know, this is media literacy in real time. Some news outlets have finally figured out, or been forced to acknowledge, that the tide has turned. Sirasa TV's News First has been live streaming the demonstrations on its YouTube channel and has grown its audience as a result. All those journalists who fled Sri Lanka will find poetic justice in the fact that now it's Gotabaya Rajapaksa who has gone into exile, jumping on a military jet to Singapore. Parliament will choose the country's next president. No one really knows where this story is going, but it is difficult to see Sri Lankans settling for the kind of supine news coverage they've lived with for the last 15 years. And news organizations, having been reminded by those on social media of what real journalism looks like, know that. They realized that finally there was a reawakening of the citizen in Sri Lanka, and that translated to the reporting as well on the ground at the protest sites. What has started is not going to stop now. This is just the start of many new ways of citizens expressing what is happening and, and an effective tool in holding the leadership accountable. What was extraordinary about what happened was that it was not something that the government could get away with. And that act of witnessing, the acts of journalism, provide a template and a model for how the country may move forward in holding whoever comes next accountable for what they do or don't do. Bashar al-Assad was in the city of Aleppo last week on a highly symbolic visit that provided the Syrian media with plenty of photo opportunities. Tarek Nafa is here with the details. Richard, this is Bashar al-Assad's first trip to Aleppo, Syria's second city since the revolution of 2011 and subsequent war. Photos published by the presidency on Instagram and Telegram showed Assad and his family going for a casual walk through the old city and taking selfies with locals. The trip also got a lot of play on Syrian state TV. The message is pretty clear. 
that Assad is in control and Syrian cities like Aleppo are on the road to recovery. What you're not seeing in these images is the years of destruction visited on Aleppo by Assad's forces. A Russian-backed siege turned the city into a living hell, according to the UN. Large parts of Aleppo were heavily damaged by aerial bombing, in which civilian infrastructure, like hospitals and schools, were routinely targeted. These kinds of sanitized photo ops are part of a wider push to normalize relations with other countries and bring Syria's diplomatic isolation to an end. A number of Middle Eastern countries have quietly resumed bilateral relations with Syria. Some of them are no doubt eyeing up lucrative reconstruction projects and trade deals. And as the Listening Post recently reported, the Syrian government has also been inviting foreign travel vloggers to the country, many of whom produce government-friendly content that shows a different side of Syria. Good morning, guys, and welcome to Damascus, Syria. I didn't know what to expect from Damascus, really, but this, this wasn't really it. Like, it, just, it feels like any other nice, touristy city. In its effort to whitewash its image, the Syrian government can clearly use all the help it can get. Thanks, Tarek. Like their counterparts across the water in Sri Lanka, journalists in India have the odds stacked against them. Many are simply not paid enough, and their salaries are often linked not to the journalism they produce, but to the advertising revenue they attract. Reporters, especially regional ones, operate knowing that should they get into trouble with the authorities or large corporations, their employers won't necessarily stand by them. And that has a chilling effect. This year, India fell eight places on the Reporters Without Borders World Press Freedom Index down to 150th out of 180 countries. The organization called that a reflection of increased violence against reporters, the intimidation they face. The Listening Post spoke with two journalists working under those conditions in two states that are often stereotyped, poorly represented, in the national media. Anuradha Basin is in Jammu and Kashmir, a region long contested and controversial in India. But first, we'll hear from Kamal Shukla in Chhattisgarh, a mineral-rich state where the environment for both citizens and journalism is threatened by corporate interests. तो छत्तीसगढ़ उस जगह में से है जहां पे तमाम प्रकार के रिसोर्सेस हैं वहीं पे सारे खनिज संसाधन हैं जहां पे आदिवासी जहां आदिवासी है वहीं जंगल है वहीं पहाड़ है वहीं सारे रिसोर्सेस हैं और आदिवासियों ने उसको बचा के रखा है तो तमाम प्रकार की जो सरकार चुन के आती है और लोकतंत्र तो एक बहाना है चुने वही लोग जाते हैं जो कारपोरेट जगत चाहती है कारपोरेट और सरकार के साथ जो मिली भगत के साथ जो लूट चल रही है तो उसका एक बड़ा उदाहरण छत्तीसगढ़ में है मैंने बत्तीस साल की पत्रकारिता में ये देखा जो है जो मुख्य धारा की पत्रकारिता है उसमें जो है सारे कारपोरेट घरानों का कब्जा है तो क्यों अपने खिलाफ समाचार चलाने देगी तो कुल मिलाकर यह है कि मुख्य धारा की पत्रकारिता में बस्तर और तमाम आदिवासी इलाके चाहे अंबिकापुर हो चाहे 
छत्तीसगढ़ के तमाम आदिवासी इलाके हों उनकी खबरें बिल्कुल नहीं आती है वहाँ के आंदोलन की खबरें नहीं आती है राष्ट्रीय स्तर के पत्रकार और अंतर्राष्ट्रीय के पत्रकार को लेके मैं भी कई बार गया मेरे साथ के कई लोग गए उसके बाद इनको पुलिस उठा लेती है मेरे जैसे आदमी पे कई बार धारे और कई बार मुकदमे कायम हुए तो सबसे ज्यादा तो केवल छत्तीसगढ़ की बात नहीं है पूरा हमारे देश में पूरा मीडिया की स्थिति ऐसी है कि जो लोकल जो जर्नलिस्ट है वही प्रताड़ित होते हैं और वही मेहनत भी करते हैं लोकल जर्नलिस्ट के लिए यहाँ मतलब सर, केवल खतरा सरकार से ही नहीं केवल खतरा माओवादी से नहीं केवल खतरा जो तस्कर हैं जो स्मगलर हैं और जो भ्रष्टाचारी हैं उनसे खतरा नहीं सबसे बड़ा खतरा उनके साथ तो उन मीडिया संस्थानों से है जो उनको जोड़ के तो रखी है मगर जो है वही पत्रकार जब आप जेल में चला जाता है उसी पत्रकार के साथ जब वारदात होती है मारपीट होती है तब आप मीडिया संस्थान साफ साफ कह देता है कि इससे हमारा कोई वास्ता नहीं ऐसा मैं खुद भी भुक्त हो गई हूं पत्रिका में था तो मेरे साथ जब मारपीट हुआ था एक मंत्री के इशारे पे वन मंत्री के इशारे पे पत्रिका ने ही मेरे को सब्जेक्ट दिया था कि मैं उस वन मंत्री के खिलाफ खबर करूं बनाने के लगातार तीन या चार बार मैंने उसको खबर चलाया मगर जैसे ही जब विधानसभा सत्र आया और विधानसभा सत्र के आने के तुरंत बाद मेरे को संवादक की तरफ से दबाव पड़ा मालिक की तरफ से दबाव पड़ा कि मैं खबर रोक दू तो मैंने वो खबर मीडिया में सोशल मीडिया में जारी कर दिया तो फिर मंत्री के लोगों ने मेरे साथ मारपीट की अब ये उसके बाद जो है पत्रिका अखबार ने साफ साफ कांकेर पुलिस को लिख के दे दिया कि कमल शुक्ला से हमारा कोई वास्ता नहीं दुनिया में दो ही पक्ष होते हैं एक अन्याय का और एक न्याय का एक सत्ता का और एक जनता का तमाम प्रकार की जितनी सत्ता है मैं उन सब के खिलाफ खड़ा हूं हमारे देश में आज मीडिया का जो चल रहा है कि रोज जो जो डिबेट चल रहे हैं वो पूरी तरह से इस मतलब इस स्थिति के लिए आज जिम्मेदार हैं तो ऐसी पत्रकारिता के खिलाफ हूं आप जो है किस तरह से आप लोगों को जोड़े रखिए आप किस तरह से लोगों के मूलभूत आवश्यकताओं के पक्ष में आप खड़े रह सकते हैं ये है जनता का पक्ष और ये ही जनपक्षी और आप इसके बिना आप आग लग रही है केवल उसको फोटो खींचेंगे तो ये पत्रकारिता मैं नहीं समझता इन द नेशनल मीडिया ग्राउंड रियालिटी इन कश्मीर एंड वॉट इज बींग डिपिक्टेड पूरी आशंका जताई थी कि जो कुछ काबुल में हो रहा है अफगानिस्तान में हो रहा है वो एक दिन कश्मीर में भी हो सकता है और अब हमारी वो आशंका सच साबित हो रही है आतंकवादी चाहते हैं कि कश्मीर में मुसलमानों को छोड़कर किसी और धर्म का व्यक्ति वहाँ ना रहे टू 
ट्रीट कश्मीरीज एज सेकेंडरी ऐसा क्या हुआ कि कश्मीर में इस्लामिक आतंकवाद की क्राइम फाइल आज तक नहीं खुल पाई it completely froze journalism journalists were operating without internet without telephones what has changed since 2019 is that we see media is less and less free it is more controlled there is an overwhelming sense of fear that uh, most kashmiris are undergoing and that includes journalists it's impossible to do a story today about human rights to say anything critical about security forces to look at a militancy related incident beyond the official statement it's just become impossible to do that i went to court because the situation was unprecedented this was violative of fundamental rights well uh, it took another 5 months but the court verdict was by and large quite good they fell short of declaring internet as as a fundamental right but it uh, laid down that the government cannot curtail internet for prolonged periods now how it is being implemented is another matter plus it leaves a little ambiguity about what the prolonged period means our office was located like many other newspapers in a government building but we seem to have been singled out and so one fine day they just came they asked our staffers to move out and locked up the office the building belonged to the government but the infrastructure belonged to kashmir times so we've been completely robbed of that our offices which had uh, more than 100 people today we we hardly have 2 3 people just managing to keep it alive the local journalists are undergoing a huge um, crisis there is the gun of the militants there are sometimes mobs that go out of control and start some kind of a moral policing and you have a state trying to completely control media summoning journalists to uh, police stations for any little uncomfortable story some of them are arrested sometimes for prolonged periods and then this is something that uh, we hardly hear about in the national narrative and finally a television moment that revealed a thing or two about the US government real politic and american journalism 
In an interview with CNN focusing on the January 6th hearings, former U.S. diplomat John Bolton casually mentioned that he has helped plan coup d'etats in other countries. That is something that Washington has always sought to deny. His interviewer, Jake Tapper, somehow failed to find that newsworthy. He carried on with his other questions, two of them. It took four and a half minutes and presumably some prompting from a producer in his earpiece before Tapper came back to the newsy part about the U.S. helping to overthrow democratic governments. We'll leave you now with that clip and some of the reviews that Tapper and CNN have attracted online. And we'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. With all due respect, uh, one doesn't have to be brilliant to attempt a coup. Uh, I disagree with that. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat, yeah. not here, but you know, other places, uh, it takes a lot of work. I, I do want to ask a follow-up, and you, you cited your expertise having planned coups. I'm not going to get into the specifics. But...